The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Patria Vandermark. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. How are you doing, Patria? I'm doing terrific. How are you, Patrick? I'm good. I'm chasing an exciting story, something that I'm hoping we are going to get to break. Uh, and so it's going to be a busy, busy day for me. Wonderful. We're looking forward to seeing this late-breaking yeah news of yours yeah i think it'll be uh i mean it's not huge you know it's not like eddie Merckx is coming out of retirement or something awesome like that but you know (laughs) this is going to be an interesting piece of news and it's going to get people looking at one corner of the u.s in maybe a fresh way or at least uh increase interest in that location interesting do you think this is something we can discuss next week Oh, yeah. I, I, I certainly hope to break the story this week. Uh, I, I have a lot of anonymous sources and nobody going on record just yet. So I'm I'm looking for the person to speak on record. And yeah, uh, who knows? This may be my poll next week. Yeah. Good. Well, we'll look forward to that. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, what's your poll this week? Well, this week, well, I'm going to back up for one moment and just mention that since last week, I mentioned that I was thinking about doing the fat pursuit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And after watching the participants in Idaho doing Jay Peterberry's fat pursuit with him or near him in that area and people throughout the country, I decided to register. So I will be doing that this month. We've had exceptionally warm weather here, so it's not going to happen immediately. But if you're looking for inspiration on snow riding, winter riding, long distance and just noticing the the difference in speeds, for example, a sub 20 hour 200 K fat pursuit on snow is really, really fast. I think that's an interesting way of, of looking at things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Check out hashtag fat pursuit on Instagram. There are great photos out there. Uh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to to participating in it. And the discussion here last week helped push me over the edge. <laughs> okay, cool. Now, one, one question. Uh, yeah. You know, you talked about how it's been warm. Are there guidelines yes. for like, it has to be at least this cold or there has to be at least this much snow or there, you know. Not for the fat pursuit for this year. Jay's trying to keep it as open to people as possible to have the most participation as possible. And then there's just general guidelines where you don't want to ride on snow if it's too warm because you'll run it. Yeah. So just yep. in the interest of keeping like taking care of the trails, that's a whole nother thing. But yeah, he's trying to keep this open to as many people as possible just to have that participation and giving people the chance to try things out, to do the, the water test, the stream crossings, the water boil test, uh-huh. all those sorts of things. Wow. Well, so it's a really fun to watch, really inspirational to me. And the OK, here we are, a group of 
super badass riders doing really cool things at really slow speeds, except <laughs> that's really fast. <laughs> right, right. It, it looks slow, but you're going like hell. Uh, right exactly good for you i want no part of it (laughs) (laughs) by the time we're done with this next year you're gonna be like oh please can i come out and do some fat bike riding with you i'm gonna keep working on you that'll be that'll be news to a a bunch of people me included um and (laughs) you know i invite you to keep at it we'll see what happens we'll do we'll do (laughs) all righty well uh yeah how about a pull now that sounds great. In a totally different line of thinking, at the bike shops, we've been getting a lot of interest and have been having many conversations about performance road bikes. As per pe- people are now really preparing for the spring. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a COVID effect, but this is the time of year that people are preparing for spring, regardless of pandemic or anything else. And a very common question that we've been hearing over and over again is, can I get a performance road bike that holds bigger tires? Can I do gravel riding on this performance road bike? So people are looking for performance road bikes to update their older bikes. Many are looking for disc brakes, electronic shifting, updated gearing, and inappropriate fit, just because a person is a little older at this point, or more experienced for that matter. Fit can go in either direction. The riders I work with have typically been riding their current bikes for five to 10 years and it's time to get a new bike and they want a better experience than what they're coming from. Technology has certainly taken road bikes to new places that does improve the experience of riding them. Electronic is a treat. uh, Oh, sorry. Electronic shifting is a treat and disc brakes offer better braking power. And this is especially true for people who are coming from old soft rim brakes not all rim brakes have sent people straight to disc brakes, but there's certainly a lot of people who are like, oh, I cannot brake properly on my bike. So these people are especially clamoring for disc brakes. Now, people are trying to be as fast as possible, mostly because they want to hang in on fast group rides and have their bike work with them to be fast rather than against them. Mm. Right now, racing has taken a bit of a backseat with COVID. <laughs> But performance in the feeling of performance and being fast is still there. That's very Mm -hmm. real, real with people. There are a lot of obvious qualities of a bike that are important in a fast road bike. These are quickness of handling, fast and immediate power transfer from the pedals to the rear wheel, a lightweight bike and the rider position. So lower and more aero Mm -hmm. and the feeling of being fast which comes from the overall bike stiffness. Now, extending these qualities to a gravel-capable bike, gravel-capable bike, I am tongue-tied today, look at a frame that is optimized at a slightly narrower gravel tire, such as 36 millimeters. Mm-hmm. Most dirt roads are rideable with tires between 28 and 32 millimeter slick tires. Mm-hmm. That's important to keep in mind because I do think there's a whole push right now to go with the absolute biggest tire you can possibly fit in your bike. And that may be overkill for the kind of gravel off-road riding you're looking to do. A 36 millimeter tire, such as a Donnelly MSO Explorer WC tire, set up tubelessly will get you through plenty of single and double track. 
gravel rides. True that. Right. Yeah. You don't have to have the biggest and that tubeless setup certainly helps. Many gravel bikes are optimizing now like 700C by 47 millimeter tires. With the center of gravity of the bike is set to ride well with this tire size. So when you put on a road performance tire of 25 millimeters or 28 millimeters on the spike, the bottom bracket gets lower by at least a centimeter. Mm -hmm. This translates to the handling of the bike becoming more sluggish. Sluggish handling means the bike isn't going to dive into corners like you might expect a performance bike to do. The quickness of handling is also associated with shorter chain stays and a shorter front center. If you're not familiar with front center, it's the distance between the center of the bottom bracket to the center of the front axle of the wheel. A performance bike is going to have three to four centimeters shorter wheelbase than a bike optimized for gravel with those big tires. Mm -hmm. The larger tire clearances will impact this chainstay length. Something else to be looking at is that some chainstays might not be built to accommodate larger chain rings. Your performance riding may demand you to have something like a 52 tooth chain ring. Depending on where you live, what kind of gearing are you looking to put in this bike? Uh, gravel bikes are going smaller and smaller chain ring size. Yep. If you're looking at the Shimano GRX crank sets, the GRX, one of their GRX crank sets is a 48 yep. uh, size large chain ring. And the other GRX is a 46 so those are sub 50 tooth, which you'd see like plenty of plenty of people will race on 50 teeth or ride fast. And then again, some people go up from there. Yeah. Now, moving on to you feeling your power going into the wheels. Chiff, stiff chain stays are going to transfer your power better and give you that feeling of your power being utilized and not being lost somewhere in the system. Obviously, when you're using road tires on stiff wheels, you feel less loss of power. The stiffer the bike, the more the road feel you have, the faster you'll feel. Take away the vibration of the road and you're likely going faster, but you'll perceive that you're not going quite as fast. Just hold that thought in your head. That's definitely a topic for a future poll. <laughs> However, you probably do want to feel the road more than you'd want on your gravel bike and more than you would want to feel the bumps on the trails, especially on longer rides. That can become very fatiguing to your body. Yeah. <laughs> Fast performance rides are less about comfort, but speed tends to be more important to riders on these shorter rides. I heard plenty of people say that, yeah, I'm fine for a 30 mile ride. If I'm going to take this bike for a longer ride, it's really going to start to beat me up. And that's OK, because what are you trying to get out of this ride? Short, fast group rides, oftentimes, yeah. or even races where, OK, fine, I'm beaten up, but that's not the end of the world. That wasn't what I was trying to accomplish out there. If you're going to be using one bike for both kinds of riding, just get two wheel sets. And you want your road bike version of the bike to have light, stiff wheels. The gravel focus wheel set should be set up with, again, the tubeless tires on wheels with wider rims and a more compliant build. Steel spokes are going to be more compliant than really stiff aluminum spokes. 
you have more spokes, that's going to be a stiffer build. You have an arrow rim, that's also a stiffer build. So there's a lot of levers there that you can flip and dial to get what you want just with the wheels alone. And don't pretend you think you're going to change the tires because <laughs> you're not. <laughs> I've done this enough times with enough people. Everyone goes in saying, OK, I think I can change the tires in between types of rides. And every everyone has now changed to just two wheel sets that you can just toss into the bike. It takes five minutes to change the wheels on your bike. It takes so much more pain and suffering to change those tires over. So you'll just skip rides as a result of needing to change your tires. Or just riding the bigger tires because you got those on there and you're not prepared to deal with the goop. <laughs> Certainly. And you've seen plenty of people show up to road group rides with the gravel tires yep. for that. Yep. Yeah, it, exactly. You're set, you're setting your wheels up tubelessly. Just definitely don't think you're going to be changing those over. It's such a mess. But tubeless has a lot of positives. The mess is one of the biggest negatives of tubeless. <laughs> We'll talk about that in another poll. <laughs> the lower weight on the bike is going to be helpful getting up hills. But the lightest and stiffest bike are not necessarily the same bike. The material is needed for the stiffness of a bike. So typically a stiffer bike means there's beefier construction. So more materials built into it. You don't necessarily want a bike that is too far to one extreme or the other. If you're in a particularly mountainous area where you're doing a lot of climbing, you'd want to focus more on the overall bike weight. And lower wheel weight is always helpful due to rotating weight. If you're in an area with rolling hills, don't worry as much about the total bike weight, but focus more on the wheel weight because you're going to be accelerating those wheels over and over again. So the weight at the rim is going to be where you want to take the weight off. If you're in a flat area, don't worry about weight at all but focus more on aerodynamics, both your riding position and aero qualities of the wheels and your helmet. Another huge win when you want to be more aero. The kind of performance riding you're doing affects the bike requirements as well. I see many people riding on their own looking to better their Strava times. Aerodynamics is more of a focus for these riders. If you're keeping up with a fast group ride, Lowering your weight and not being concerned about aerodynamics is more important. There's not going to be too much aero savings if you're riding with other people in the turbulence of the pack. You'll be taking advantage of drafting and those sorts of situations. And maybe you're not drafting right now. This is COVID times. Remember, after COVID's over, what is your riding going to look like on the other side of this? Your position on a gravel bike is typically a bit more upright and your reach will be less. This is beneficial for your gravel riding. You're getting the weight off the front wheel so you can pop over rocks. It's going to be a slightly more comfortable position. However, for your performance riding, you want to have a bit more of a reach and be a little bit lower. So you wanna make sure this frame allows for each of these positions. It's common for someone to want to raise and lower the stem in order to achieve both of those positions. Lowering your stem by one to two centimeters will extend your reach just like that. So you don't necessarily have to change the stem as well to get to have a little longer of a reach. If you just lower it a couple centimeters, you're going to be more reached out. And that's comfortable if you're staying on the road on this bike. Again, that's not a great position if you're trying to navigate on, say, a single track 
around roots, rocks, trees, that sort of thing. It's important to be clear with whomever you're working at a bike shop on specking a new bike as to what you want out of the bike. You're going to find too many salespeople will make assumptions for you based on your age and your physical appearance and simply their experiences, which doesn't necessarily apply to you. I've seen this happen way too many times. So unfortunately, it happens. And I think that is human nature for someone to basically to to relay what they've seen someone else who maybe look like you or talks like you to think that that's the kind of writing you need to be doing or the kind of bike that you're going to want. It's critically important to demo ride bikes and ask to ride both wheel sets. Try the different tire sizes out on the bike and see what you think. That is extremely important. If someone tells you you can't demo ride a bike, just go to another shop. We've figured out how to do this safely with COVID. So COVID is not an excuse. You need to try these things out. Only you can say this is what I liked and this is what I don't like. And there are no two people who feel the same things. So your feedback about those rides should inform what you want to buy. Now, what do you think about that? What else would you would you add to this conversation? So the the big thing that you covered, I think it's kind of the crux move in this equation. And that is, you know, when you buy the new bike, buy a second set of wheels, just do Mm -hmm. it around here back in 2017, when the fires hit and we lost 5% of our residential housing. I mean, I unfortunately knew a number of people who lost their homes and all of their bikes. And in a great many instances, you know, you've got somebody who's rebuilding an entire household. So they don't really have a lot of time to sit down and think about, well, okay, so I'm going to, I had a camera before, but gosh, I've been looking at the Ripley for a little more travel. You know, people didn't have time to really uh, do a lot of of uh, investigating and, you know, all the typical typical worrying through of a purchase. So I know so many guys who bought one gravel bike, bought a second set of wheels with smaller tires, and that's what they did for six months to a year. And, you know, meanwhile, they're buying plates and silverware and glasses and couches and all this other stuff that, you know, honestly, in the grand scheme needed to be a good deal more expensive. But that has served as a template for a great many other riders here in Northern California who, you know, it's part of it also is like they see disc brakes and they get excited about it um, and they try to talk uh, to their significant other about buying another bike and SO is like, well, what's wrong with that bike? And, you know, sometimes it comes down to, well, it doesn't have disc brakes and everybody's going to disc brakes and I want to be safe. You build the argument however you can. Um, But certainly, you know, I've seen that as a big driver and you can't really do particularly serious gravel riding with caliper brakes. I've got the long reach uh, uh, Vela Oranges on my Danucci and I can squeeze a 35 in there. Um, and in a lot of places that would be a big enough tire. It's not big enough for around here. The guys who try to run 33s and 35s on the grasshoppers, they flat a whole lot more than anybody who's running a 38 or a 40. 
Uh, I don't run across people running 40 millimeter tires or flatting on grasshoppers. And we've got a lot more rock around here than a lot of other folks. So, yeah, I think I'm with you. 47 is a whole lot of tire. That's a you need a pretty special circumstance to encounter that with the rock. We have 38s and 40s. That's really kind of the sweet spot. If I was back in Memphis, I could definitely get to get away with a 33, 35, somewhere in there. Um, you know, and if it's muddy, skinnier is absolutely better. Um, but you'd need to go with more like a cyclocross tire. But right. yeah, to your original point, I think when people are contemplating simplifying and having one bike, and also there's a lot to be said for uh, having having the same brakes you're dealing with on all of your rides. It, once you're in a drop bar bike, um, going back and forth between caliper brakes and disc brakes is really problematic for a lot of people. It probably took me the better part of four months to get the, the change in feel down um, in terms of how hard I would pull the levers so that I wasn't over braking with disc brakes. Um, it's now second nature to me. I can switch back and forth between the bikes and it doesn't bug me, but you know, I, I frightened a few people. The, the first couple group rides I, I went out on with disc brakes. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. You can definitely overpower skinny tires with disc brakes, especially <laughs> hydraulic disc brakes. Yeah. That's more brake power than you need with a skinny tire. Generally. Yeah. Cause I mean, you can break away, uh, you know, a, a normal road tire with hard enough braking with, uh, you know, traditional calipers, you can lock those up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it does take a little while to, to get the feel for that, but it, you know, it, if that's the only bike you're riding, yeah. Um, the funny thing about position that I've noticed is everybody thinks, Oh, I've got to be long and low. I got to be long and low. And then they get on a gravel bike with a higher position, a little shorter position. And they're like, gosh, this is really comfortable. Yep. I don't see people changing their position on their gravel bike to go out for a road ride. Those they'll swap wheels, but they're not, right. you know, they're not switching the, the, you know, like flipping the stem down or moving spacers. I'm, you know, cause that's, you know, for a lot of people, that's probably a half hour process. You know, making sure the headset's properly tightened afterwards and all that, you know. Yep. Yeah. Most folks Definitely. don't want to. It's true. Yeah. The reality is that you're not going to change anything, which again is a good reason to have the two wheel sets because that's about the as much change as you're going to want to make to your bike. Yeah. Yeah. But going in, if you're being honest with yourself that you want a performance road bike, you want to be racing with this bike at some point in the future. You want to make sure to keep that door open. Because yep. you may end up staying in that position because you find out your gravel riding is really just that. It's dirt roads. It's not more hardcore gravel. There is a world of difference between those two things. <laughs> and here in New England, we talk about it as mixed terrain, which is definitely bordering more on what a lot of people consider mountain biking. A lot of people are doing that on their gravel bikes. And then you go up to Vermont and everyone's on these smooth-ish dirt roads where you can get away with so much less tire. Yeah. And that's the extent of what a lot of people want to do. They just want to get off the busy paved roads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just get to just quieter, less trafficked roads, which is going to be a smooth dirt road. These yeah. cars are going to choose pavement. 
So it, it could be just as complicated as that. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's terrific advice. And when I'm talking to people, yeah, I, I tell them for around here, very often I'm talking to people in, you know, in my neck of the woods, as opposed to say central Florida. Uh, so I tell them just buy the gravel bike. You're going to need the bigger tires. You know, you're not going to be able to get away with a 33 around here. Just buy the gravel bike, get it set up, have the second set of wheels. If I was in Memphis, uh, there are certainly bikes that, you know, won't take 38s and 40s that I'd be willing to look at. Uh, so I think, I think being cognizant of where you live, but then not only that, like if you want to be able to go off and do some of the other events around the country, because certainly one of the features we're seeing with people who buy gravel bikes is they go to Kansas and, you know, they do unbound, uh, they, yeah. You know, they go to various places and you go to the Flint Hills, you need a 38 or a 40. You need something like that. So it's be it's if you think you're going to want to travel, it's important not to underbuy. Exactly. Yeah. So and you don't know who your friends are. Most people choose their riding based on their friends. And a lot of people's friends are getting into gravel in some way, and they don't even realize it necessarily, especially right now that people aren't riding together. (laughs) There is a tremendous number of people going that direction. And I've certainly heard from people saying, hey, I need a gravel bike because all my friends are doing it and I want to ride with them. And that's that's as complicated as it gets. It's just I would like to be with my friends and this is what they're doing. So, yes, keep that in mind. Yeah. Your friends might find that and they're going that direction and, and you're going to want to do that too. You know, when I was 16, peer pressure was awful. Uh, now that I've, you know, gotten well into adulthood, allegedly, peer pressure is pretty <laughs> wonderful. Yes, it is. <laughs> the peer pressure in the bike world is the best. I love it. I'm always joking about that. Like whenever you peer pressure somebody into a crazy ride or something. Oh, that's great. Thank goodness for peer pressure. Yeah. Right there with you. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Except for those occasions where they're like, oh, you can totally do this on a gravel bike. And, you know, six hours later, it's like, I'm not even sure I have any shoulders left. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But maybe that was just me not listening. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. What kind of bike or what kind of tire are we talking about? Yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's, it's fun to hear you address this and yeah, the, the way you steer people, um, I, I think it, uh, an awful lot of it holds true for around here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neat yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of that. And we certainly sell a lot of bikes to people who live in California or who travel from coast to coast regularly. So we do a lot of that. I work with a lot of people who live in Colorado, which obviously that's easier for me because I've done a lot of Colorado riding. So we could see into that. But yes, people are mobile and travel is in people's future. Yeah. So being able to accommodate for all of these things or just keeping the door open for that future location and future type of riding. It's just it's great to be able to do that. Yeah. So yeah when people come to us and say, this is what I want to do. I want a performance road bike. Anna might want to use it on gravel. The answer is yes, absolutely. We can do that. We Very do that cool. all the time. Yeah. Yes, you're in good company. Yeah, nice stuff. Alrighty, we're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a minute. The Pace Line is brought to you by the Cycling Independent. 
We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader-supported, with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on Support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Time for my pull. But funny, you know, you should talk about people wanting to get off roads and, and you know, a- avoid cars and whatnot. This past week, I was talking with a friend who was planning to sell their road bike. Just get rid of it. Their partner, mm-hmm. uh, no genders mentioned. <laughs> Uh, their partner is terrified that they are going to be run over by someone texting their BFF and thump, thump, their kids will be short one parent. Not to make light of that, you know. Uh, One of the things they said that I've heard other people echo is how they think road riding is an endangered species and that in 10 years, no one will be riding road bikes in America. I Hmm. don't think that's that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. And... I'm my poll. I'm going to explain why I think we're in the midst of a, what is truly a very difficult period in time in road use, uh, you know, particularly for road cyclists, people have more stuff vying for their attention, you know, and even while driving, Ugh. uh, I mean, seriously, have you seen the size of the screen in a Tesla? I have not. Oh my gosh, it's enormous. Like you could watch sitcoms on it. My first laptop had a screen half that size. It was also black and white. Oh my, yeah. So, you know, Google and Ford and basically every car company out there, even Uber, uh, they're all working on self-driving technology. And one of the weird things in this is I continue to read about it. I find it super fascinating and I'm going to get to the reasons why. There are ethicists who are talking about the decision-making tree that AI needs to be able to deal with, like in the event of an accident. Once the AI knows something's going wrong, uh, something that, you know, wasn't their cause, the ethicists are saying, you know, we've got to be looking at, do you take out the dog? Do you take out the retail uh, storefront? Or do you broadside the car with kids in it? You know, yeah, I've been watching this, too. I think it's a very interesting subject. Yeah. That yeah part, how do you think about that? Yeah, that part really terrifies me because, I mean, there was somebody yeah. who was advocating, well, you know, if you if you hit another car, you could be propelling that energy into all sorts of different directions. Whereas if you just run over one pedestrian, that's just one pedestrian. I'm, I was like, well, you got you're an ethicist. That really bothered me. Okay, so they'll sort that out. And there's going to come a point at which self-driving technology is truly going to be bulletproof. Okay, and those cars will be somewhat affordable. Economically, that's going to do some really interesting stuff. The first thing that I think we will see is that they will be much cheaper to insure than traditional cars because the insurance company can rely upon, well, 
you know, we know he wasn't an idiot and sped up to 85 miles an hour in a school zone. Okay. That's not a thing. As more and more people move to them for convenience, that delta in insurance cost is only going to get bigger and bigger. It's going to become more and more expensive to insure a regular car. Okay. Right. Right. There's going to be a lot of drivers too pushing people toward that. Yeah. And because these cars are going to be more expensive than the average Prius or even, you know, Tesla, Uber, Lyft, traditional cab companies, uh, they're going to buy fleets of them. Okay. There's going to be a reduction in car ownership overall. So, you know, think about it. Why own this thing that you have to pay to own, pay to maintain, and very often, you know, in bigger cities, very often pay to park when for $5, you can get a ride to the store. Another $5 ride home, Mm -hmm. you know? Once we have a majority of self-driving cars on the road, and admittedly, this is going to take a little while, traffic will move better. You won't have people racing ahead to cut in line. There won't be road rage going on between self-driving cars. And there won't be <laughs> looky-loose slowing for accidents because A, self-driving cars won't slow down. And B, self-driving cars aren't going to crash much. Uh, you know, uh, and honestly, you know, if you're in a self-driving car and there is an accident, you can turn and look all you want because you won't be in charge of slowing the car down. <laughs> True that, right? You can just see all that you want more than you ever have. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about with regard to accidents, there's going to be this thing that pushes cars like my Subi off the road. Anyone who gets in an accident with a self-driving car will be found to be at fault. And you can figure it's going to be easy to prove because self-driving cars will have to have 360 degree camera coverage. So there will be proof of, you know, if I, if I hit a self-driving car, there will be an adequate record of it. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, okay. uh, This is a cycling podcast. I'm pretty sure. Uh, (laughs) What does this all have to do with bikes? Simple. Self-driving cars are going to make it safer for us to be out on the road on our bikes. That's the thing. They're going to be programmed to avoid us and they're going to be programmed to avoid everything. So it doesn't matter if you're solo, if you're riding double file uh, with some people or if it's a whole Peloton, a pack that confines itself to a single lane on a two lane road isn't going to pose a significant problem for traffic because self-driving cars won't have difficulty merging. All that AI is going to be programmed in a lot of the same ways to behave, you know, in similar fashion. So they'll be able to maintain speed better. Uh, You know, you won't have as many, you won't have anybody like tapping their brakes when they think they're too close to somebody. Speed will be much more easily maintained. And that merging issue, they'll simply go around the pack. You won't be getting flipped off. You won't have methed out delivery drivers slamming into riders from behind. I mean, oh, it's going to be so boring riding our bikes on the road. (laughs) This new world where we don't have to talk about that driver and how dare he or she. (laughs) And I'm thinking about that day where we're right at the tipping point and, you know, the cop pulls two people riding side by side over for blocking traffic. You know, and meanwhile, all the self-driving cars are just going around just fine. 
That's going to be a funny conversation because you know, that's going to happen some before, before all of this is straightened out. People are going to still get pulled over by cops and it's like, well, they're all moving just fine. I don't see any problems here. Uh, it, you know, the question for me is like, how far in the future is this point? Is it 10 years? Is it 20 years? I think it's going to be here sooner than we think. Although I don't yet know what to think. <laughs> I hope you're right. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, everybody's looking forward to that. Yeah. And it's funny because, so I don't, you know, I'm in the greater Bay Area, but this is kind of the last outpost of what's considered the Bay Area. Uh, you know, everything else is generally pretty much closer in than Santa Rosa. And so Palo Alto, pretty far removed. And that's where, you know, all the real serious heavy lifting in tech is being done. But I see experimental self-driving cars up here on the roads. So they're, oh. they're out there driving around. Um, yeah, you'll how see. How do this. you know when you see one? How do you know that it is a big experimental? cluster of cameras up on top of it? Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't seen one yet. Uh, they're out there. Um, yeah, nice. It's that's great. It's remarkable. I mean, you know, it's still got a steering wheel, and there's still a person in there. But there will be this thing on top that looks like something out of 1984 in terms of the number of cameras. <laughs> yeah. Uh, You're watched. You're being watched. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, man, I can't wait. I, this is going to be a really welcome thing. Think about all the fatali- fatalities of cyclists that it, it's just going to stop. Right. You know? Yep. So <laughs> it's going to help so much. Yeah, absolutely. So when I hear people get nervous about self-driving cars, I'm like, no, bring it on, please. Yeah. Can't I feel the same way. Soon. Yeah. Like I, it can't, it, it's not going to be any worse. It's definitely going to help us significantly. And then, yeah, you're not going to have significant others worried about that aspect of cycling. Yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really going to help. And it's it's great when just you're talking about this, imagining that world. And I think we're all doing that right now, listening to you discuss this. Imagine that not having to worry about cars and not having to breathe the exhaust of these cars. You know, we're going more into electric cars, which in some ways right now, I'm more worried about electric cars when they pass because I can't hear them. I don't necessarily know that they're coming. Yep. Yep. And there are some there's some nice uh, like Varia radar that Garmin put out is nice that you can see on your computer that mm-hmm. something's coming because you just can't hear it anymore. But yeah, not having to breathe the exhaust of the car and now you don't hear it, but that's OK because, you know, it's going to pass with a safe distance. No worries. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, being a parent right now, the thought of like allowing my 11 year old out on the road by himself. He's 11. I was That's doing terrifying. that. And it's like with the way people drive now. No, I mean, I, so there's a bike lane on the main road that passes near where I live. And that's every time I'm driving into downtown, I get on this road, Montgomery. It's got a bike lane. And I'll be driving down the road behind somebody and the car ahead of me will have its right tires on the right white line of the bike lane. <laughs> Just driving down the road, you know. That's so frustrating. Yeah. So that stuff is going to end. And I won't be terrible. I could let my eight-year-old out on the roads at that point 
if he, you know, I get time warp, not going to happen, but if we were there now, I wouldn't be afraid of allowing my eight-year-old to ride around. Yeah. That's a big difference. That's a different world than we're navigating right now. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So it's something to keep an eye on. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it's nice to have something to hope for. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. We all need that now. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we will be dreaming about this world that you have painted in our heads now. Uh, well, you know, may this may the future arrive sooner than we think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Cheers to that. Yeah. All righty. Paceline picks. What do you have for us this week? In the interest of talking about performance road riding, <laughs> it's time to be preparing for spring road riding. Mm -hmm. Check out the Tubalito tubes. These are orange, mm -hmm. which is what helps them stand apart from other tubes. They are very, very lightweight. For example, 40 grams versus 124 grams for a typical butyl tube. And butyl is what you would typically use. Mm -hmm. And a butyl tube is like about a $10 tube that you would get from your bike shop on a normal basis so it's a big difference it's 84 grams of weight difference it's twice as puncture resistant as a typical butyl tube it has the same or similar rolling resistance to latex tubes which are very well known for their excellent rolling resistance yeah. qualities and they take up very little room so these are nice to have in a small saddlebag it's about three times as much or a little over three times as a butyl tube at $35. But something that is this light in your wheel. And again, this is at the rim. So this is at the outside of your wheel, which is where weight adds up fastest. Um, it's just worth the extra money. I have done a calculation once upon a time, not too long ago. And I was calculating how much like dollar per gram it would be if you wanted to lower the weight of your bike beyond the dura ace level so if you're now going to buy a lighter weight crank set lighter weight whatever it is that you could buy lighter mm -hmm. than your typical aluminum cockpit that sort of thing and what i came out to was five dollars per gram mm. that's that's a lot of money so yeah. using that math to this tube that's four hundred and twenty dollars of weight savings that you're only paying thirty five dollars for. Ooh, I Look like how that. you That's, did that. I, you like that? I do. <laughs> Tremendous value. You can take that home and share it with your spouse. And that, that person. Like, oh, my gosh, that's great. This is a good way to spend money. <laughs> and it is tough. Something that a tough tube in your saddlebag is a good thing because it's going to be rubbing against your levers, <laughs> which will cause holes in your tubes over time. And they ride well. I was practicing with these tubes because I was certain when I was training to do Unbound in Kansas, when they were calling it Dirty Kansas last year, uh, I was riding with these tubes, both front and rear in my gravel bike and my gravel tires to see how they rode. And they rode great. I wasn't able to get them to flat, but I don't tend to flat just regularly. I, I rarely have a flat in my tube. So that's not necessarily a good test. That I can say, yes, I, I couldn't get them to flat, but they rode very well and the weight is obvious. So I, I enjoy them and I would suggest them for you and your as you're improving your kit and making everything just that much better for this coming spring season. 
I'm curious. So I reviewed them more than a year ago. Uh, I want to say, uh, and I love them. And you know, one of the other things is because they're so small in the average saddle bag that you might only get one butyl tube in, you can get two of these in. Yes. It requires a little bit of extra push, but Mm -hmm. you can do it. I heard back though, from some of my readers at red kite prayer that they really didn't like them. They'd have problems with defects and stuff. You see a lot more of these than I do. Have you had anything to, I mean, it's your pace line pick. I'm guessing this has all gone well, but have you seen anything so that far. would cause somebody to go, uh-uh? Not yet. Okay. So uh, you're obviously reaching more people, but yeah, if there was a, a defective batch or something, I mean, and, but that can happen with anybody. I've certainly seen butyl tubes that come with a hole in them. Oh, gosh. So yeah. like that, that happens with any product. And at this price, I would bet you're going to be taken care of if you warranty the tube with your shop. So I would, I, I would say, try it, have it in your saddlebag, take two. They're light enough. You can take two. <laughs> it's still lighter than one butyl tube. Yeah. Yeah. Very so, cool. I'm glad to hear about your review. I did not realize this was a product that you reviewed. So I did this all on my own. Yeah. Well, uh, it's yeah. It's risky. I'm a- <laughs> I'm a fan. I really do like them. And I'm partial to anything that's orange. So I, I was stupidly into them even before I tried them. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Well, you always know since it's an orange valve stem, you know if someone has these tubes yeah. in their wheels. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing to mention is they have mountain bike tubes. There is yeah. an opportunity to save weight in space. And I'm just sitting around waiting for them to create a fat tube. Because I think that will really be nice Mm. where it comes to saving weight and space. Yeah, fair point. So last week, a friend pinged me and they were looking for advice on winter gloves, uh, winter cycling gloves. And it's funny because I, I, we, we messaged back and forth and I talked about some of my favorite options and I completely failed to mention these. And I feel like such a hose beast. Um, I, yeah, what, what a fail. Um, so Hestra is a glove maker that makes almost, I I sort of want to use the word literally, but certainly every sort of glove that I can imagine from dress to Alpine, they make this thing called the Nimbus split mitt. It's a lobster glove, but it's different from other lobster gloves in that it's not insulated. It's meant to go over another pair of gloves. So think about all the times that you've headed out for a ride with a glove that wasn't heavy enough and your fingers froze or all the times that you went out in a too heavy glove and you had trouble shifting because you had trouble with dexterity and your hands were sweating. You know, I've never done either one of those. (laughs) That's too common on both sides. Yeah. But the Nimbus is just a shell and it's windproof and water resistant it's made from a polyamide with an elastane blend. So it, it's, you know, it's polyesterish, but it has a little bit of stretch. So it's easier to get over another pair of gloves. Um, I've worn these over a pair of lightweight full finger gloves. And once things warmed up, you know, a good 10 degrees, I was able to take them off and stuff them in a pocket. And because they don't have any insulation of their own, they don't take up much room. 
So mm. yeah, just a wonderful, wonderful idea. They go for $40 and come in six sizes and their site has an extensive sizing guide to make sure you buy the correct glove. I was sent a size 10, which is their next largest glove. I was dealing with the PR agency. They didn't bother to ask me what size. And so what I have is a, a little too big, uh, kind of a minor frustration. Um, but yeah, it's nice that they offer six sizes. So it's it's really worth it to go and check out the sizing guide because you can get these to fit over existing gloves really well so that you have excellent dexterity. Um, my mitts were early production and they don't have any grippers on them. But since then, they've added uh, a silicone gripper to the thumb, uh, to the palm, and then the upper portion of the lobster, the first two fingers. Uh, oh, yeah, that's a good ad. It is. It is because they, you know, it's better on road brake levers and shifters. Definitely easier to get a grip on them that way. It's a really neat product. And at $40, you know, you think about what it does in terms of expanding the usefulness of every other pair of gloves you own. Uh, right. These are these should be like a, a go to in everybody's kit. Uh, I'm really impressed with, the, with them. Um, so how does it work if you need to stop, use your phone? Do you take them off or can oh, you yeah. use them? Yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, it might be with, with the grippers added, they might be a little bit more temperature sensitive, but as it is no, there's no hope of, of me using my phone without pulling them off first. Um, and how easy is it to pull them off? It's, it's not hard. Um, I tend to start with teeth. Uh, and then go to, go <laughs> <Yeah>. to fingers. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're not hard to get off. I've had some gloves where uh, the elastic at the wrist is just insanely tight. Um, there's a pair of Castelli gloves I had, um, you know, kind of late fall. They fit great. The dexterity was wonderful. I could use a phone, but the elastic at the wrist was so insanely tight that I was popping seams, getting them on and off. I finally threw uh, them away last week. It was just, uh -huh. it, you know, it was like, it was a product that was like so close to amazing, but ended up being a, not a complete fail, but, um, a definite D minus. Yeah. That's one feature. That's it. Yeah. Or lack thereof. Yeah. Just yeah. one little thing they got wrong. Right. It's like, mm, mm -hmm. yeah. And it takes a lot for me to just put something in the trash as opposed to giving it to a friend. Uh, sure. You know? Yeah. So, uh, well, I'm a big fan of lobsters also. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this is like the lobster shape. Yeah. I mean, that's you're doing so many good things by keeping your fingers together yeah. for the warmth aspect. Yeah. It's really good to hear about these. I'll definitely be checking them out. And yeah. I can't imagine a glove company that makes uh, dress gloves. That's something I don't even think about. It's nice looking gloves. All of my gloves are very functional. They're big, puffy things. Yep. Yeah. But just thinking about actually wearing nice looking gloves, that's that's a good concept. Oh, yeah. I, I bet they're making all the driving gloves for Ferrari and Porsche and, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. Uh, yeah, these are really, really neat. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, and again, the name of the company is Hestra. Um, super impressed. I would say that they increase... Uh, the, the effectiveness of the gloves you've got on by a solid 10 to 15 degrees, you know, that's important. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So if you're not willing to go out, you know, with 
with a pair of gloves below 60 degrees, this is going to make a big difference. Yeah. Neat stuff. That it will. Yeah. It is. Oh, what do you have on tap for your week? Uh, you said it's a little warm there. Are you going to be getting out for some solid rides? It is warm here. Hmm, probably not. The warmer the weather, the less excited I am about going out in it. <laughs> so, with the other thing is warm weather brings out demo riders. So, I have a lot of demo rides to Ooh. schedule and execute this week. So, I'll get to see a lot of other people doing some great riding. <laughs> and I will be inside on the trainer, which is just fine. I enjoy time on the trainer. I, My husband and I ride trainers together, so it's a good time huh. together. And we enjoy watching cycle cross races, which uh-huh. right now we're in a three week lull while all the racers are off to warm climates training. But we enjoy watching previous years races. And mm-hmm. there's so much good stuff out there on YouTube. It keeps us it's 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 entertaining. It's fun to watch the racers get to know who they are, uh, all that. So we we stay very well entertained in that way. And we're getting trained up and I'm looking forward to the fat pursuit at some point, which hopefully We'll get some snow in the next couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Otherwise, I'm going to have to cross state lines, maybe by a few states to uh, to find some snow. But at least there won't be any people interaction at all with that. Uh, so, yeah, that's what my week looks like. What about yours? Cool. Uh, well, we're just finishing up uh, a whole bunch of rain we, for like every three days or so. We were getting rain up here. Uh, and so the trails are starting to dry out. I've still seen people going into the trails. It's like, come on, guys. Uh, mm. but things are starting to dry out. Uh, I'm probably doing a road ride today, but I'm hoping that, uh, I'm hearing from people that I can get out on the trails tomorrow. So mm. kind of, kind right. of, uh, eager to get back to that. Yeah. So we're drying out, we're warming up. Yay. Great. Uh, I'm excited. Yeah. That's <laughs> Our- wonderful. It's good to have things to look forward to, as you say. Yeah. Hope, hope and looking forward to good stuff. Amen. It's all coming. Yep. Well, hey, everybody, that's a wrap on another episode of The Pace Line. Keep those questions coming. You all are sending great stuff. If you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Patria Vandermark. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.